You buy yourself a tape recorder, you just record yourself for a whole day. I think you're going to be surprised at some of your phrasing. What we've got here is failure to communicate. There's got to be a better way to say that. Whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever it is, you are catching some brainwaves. Coming to you from the banks of the St. Brain River in almost always sunny Longmont, Colorado, I'm Becky Peters, and across the table is the only co-host who says all the right things at exactly the right time. He's Ben Kalb. Ben, what's good? It is all good, Becky. I am feeling crazy lucky to be bringing the advice of giants in education to my favorite people, busy teachers, to make us more informed, inspired, and connected educators. And we've been doing that for almost two years. We are approaching our two-year anniversary. How's it feel, Becky? I love it. I love it. It feels really, really good. It doesn't feel like two years. It feels faster. Yeah, it does. In some ways and then some ways way way slower. Yeah, totally. Two years is a long time to do anything, especially like a podcast. Uh, We're talking over 60 interviews, more books than I've ever read at any time in my life. It's not even really close. And it's been a massive undertaking. And it's because of how massive this undertaking has been that I will never forget um, when one of my friends kind of called me out for it. I'm going to say his name on here. His name's Kevin Colby, friend of the show, friend of me. I taught with him for a lot of years in Illinois. Friend of me. I like it. Friend of me. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, He comes out to Colorado every year with his family to ski from Illinois. And last March we were catching up and he was asking me about my family. And then he said something that will ring in my ears all the time. He said, Hey, how's that little podcast you're doing no, going? Yeah, Kevin. I know. And anytime you throw in the word little before something, it kind of like stings really bad. So even after I went up to J.K. Rowling and was like, hey, how's that little <laughs> series you're doing about the wizard boy going? <laughs> it kind of paints it in a totally different light, changes the tone of the conversation. And uh, I am totally over it. Kevin's my friend. Obviously, he drove two hours out of his way to come and see me, and he knows I do a podcast. So I know he meant well, but just throwing in that little word definitely changed the course of that conversation, and it made me kind of feel bad. Becky, have you Ugh. had stuff like that happen with language? Only like every day, right? Every day. I mean, we do it all the time. We're humans, and I do it to other people by accident, too. But like, of course I do. It's super hard, like in my job now, to not sound judgy sometimes when I'm working with teachers, even in the questions I ask, like, you know, if I have to ask somebody, what was the intention of that learning activity that I saw you doing? That can sound so condescending and judgmental if I ask it the wrong way. And I really, really don't mean it to be just like Kevin probably didn't mean like, you know, your little project or whatever. Um, Another example, I was just talking to a parent of a of a boy with dyslexia. We're getting ready to do an episode on dyslexia. And um, she said that one of his biggest pet peeves is like when teachers say, we would never know that you're dyslexic. And, you know, to us, that might sound like a compliment, yeah. like, you know, oh, look at your work. I'm, you know, I would never know that you struggle. Um, but for him, it was really hurtful because it like glosses over all the struggle and like the identity of the learner that he is. Um, and that was another example that I heard recently that, you know, I, Teachers don't mean to be, you know, dismissive of that for students. Of course they don't. Um, But it's another time our language kind of betrays us. 
One more example. I work with a ton of people that do workshops for professional development across the state. And sometimes they'll have people come up to them after the workshop and say things like, hey, I know you didn't plan this part, but we went a different direction and ended up having like a phenomenal discussion. And sometimes for the presenter, that was what they yeah, planned. Yeah, they were trying to do that. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, I did try to get you to think deeply about that. And it just kind of undercuts their playing and intentionality. Yeah, just you know? say, hey, that was awesome. You don't have to start with, hey, I know you didn't mean for that to be awesome, but totally. you accidentally stumbled <laughs> on some awesomeness. Well, the entire podcast today is about language and the words we use. And this is a super, super tricky topic because it can feel really personal. Um, in our interview today, I even found myself getting defensive of, of myself, things that I've said, or incredible teachers who I know have fallen into some of the traps that our guest is going to talk about. And I, I've had situations in my life where people have called me out on my language and my word choice, and it really has felt like they were judging my character or who I am as a person. And so it's gut-wrenching. Um, and my mantra for this year, which I've already messed up like a dozen times in 2020, <laughs> is just presuming positive intent. And that's really a huge aspect of this episode that remember as we listen to this, the whole point of examining our language is because we need to honor the incredible intent we have by making sure that our language matches up with our intentions. Uh, one of the cool lines from this guest book, Mike Anderson, is we want alignment between intent and the words we use. So a good framing question for this episode is how does our language support what we really feel and believe? Um, just kind of a little story that just happened. Little. Uh, <laughs> so my son Judah is in this like little program and his teacher is named Miss Becky and he absolutely mm -hmm. adores her. And as I was picking him up the other day, he was like, see you, Miss Becky, you kooky. And he, he like called her. I don't think he knows what a kook is or what a kooky is, but he absolutely loves Miss Becky. And him saying that totally undermines how I know he actually feels about Miss Becky. And so I had to call him out on it and just be like, hey, that's, you know, that's not how we talk to someone that we like and adore like I know you do. And so it's not about attacking our character or who we are. It's just identifying the misalignment between our values and the word choices that we use. Huh. I, it's so interesting, like trying to teach these things to our little kids and how much it mirrors yeah. the things that we struggle with still as adults. Um, that's a really cool example. But we got to remind ourselves that like Kim Scott told us back in episode four, uh, which was what, like two years ago, crazy. Um, feedback is a gift and we don't take it personally when a colleague helps us find a typo that gets in the way of an email when we're asking them to proofread it. I don't take it personally when you tell me that the background of my slide deck is going to distract from what I have to say. I want you to tell me those things. Uh, uh, we just need to find our marigolds who we can ask to look at our language and help us find when what we say gets in the way of our true beliefs, beliefs and feelings. Mm -hmm. And that's a deeply personal thing, as we'll hear uh, during this interview. So obviously, we have tons to learn on this topic, and that's why we're so pumped to have on our guest today, Mike Anderson. He's the author of the book, What We Say and How We Say It Matter colon, teacher talk that improves student learning and behavior. It was just published in 2019 by ASCD, and it boasted a very hard-to-acquire bestseller status within just a few short months of its release. I think people are really thirsty to have this conversation. So today, Mike helps us understand the importance of cultivating our language to support our goals for the classroom. So without further ado, here he is. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, let's dive in. We just heard the awesome news that your book has been categorized by ASCD as being a top seller in five months, which is fantastic. Um, can you tell us uh, what's the elevator pitch for your newest book? Yeah, so the elevator pitch for this one, I suppose, is that there are a, kind of a few key points. One is that um, language is super, super important. And so the way we talk to kids and how we talk to kids has a huge, huge impact on their learning. So I guess that's point A is language is super important. 
language uh, part B, I was I suppose, is that we've got really good intentions and positive goals. I think just about all educators want really good things for their students and mm -hmm. have positive goals. The next point would be that we all, when it comes to our language, have to rely on habits and patterns because in the midst of the craziness of teaching, you just can't pre-think everything you're going to say all the time. So you've got to have your go-to sayings. And you know, if a predictable question up, comes up, you have a predictable response or you have kids transition in certain ways and you say it pretty much the same way all the time. So then the final point in all of this is that even though we all have positive intentions and our language is important and we're in language habits, we don't always end up in language habits that align with our best intentions. And sometimes we end up in habits that are in direct opposition to our goals and best intentions for kids. So the goal of this book is to help raise awareness about what are some of our best intentions and how do we better align our language with those good goals we have for kids. How did you come to that realization that there's that misalignment between our best intentions and our, our daily language habits? There were a couple of things that happened early on in my career as a classroom teacher. And I know at least one of these I talk about in the book. So I remember really specifically um, my very first year of teaching fourth grade in Connecticut. I wanted my students to give me some feedback about how my first year of teaching went. I figured they were the best people to give me some legit, honest feedback about how my teaching had been since we'd hung out together for the last 10 months. So I had my fourth graders fill out a report card for me where they gave me ratings in all kinds of different categories. And I created a comment section. And I remember one of the kids in the class, her name was Jenna. She gave me a comment that really hurt at the time. And it was something about how I had sometimes hurt her feelings. Aww. And I was crushed. I thought, what, Jenna, how could that be? But we've got this great rapport. We're always joking and teasing back and forth. So I went over to her and I got down on one knee and I said, Jenna, thank you so much for giving me this feedback. This is really important for me to hear. And I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to hurt your feelings. Can you help me understand what I said or what I did? And she kind of smiled and rolled her eyes. She said, I know you didn't mean to, Mr. A. It's just that I couldn't always tell when you were joking and when you were serious. And I thought, right, because you're 10. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as a child development major, you'd think I would have been a little more cued in. But mm. um, so that was one thing that happened. And then actually, when I took the responsive classroom workshop a couple of years later in the summer, the instructor, Paula Denton, I remember her pushing us, the teachers in the workshop, to think about behaviors in our class, behaviors with our students that we found infuriating. Hmm. And the first thing that came to mind was helplessness. It drove me nuts when I had fourth graders lined up to me to tell me things like they broke their pencil or <laughs> they didn't know what to do next. When I'm thinking, oh my gosh, there are so many resources around this room. You could ask other people. I just, it drove me nuts. And then she said, can you think of a way that your language might have an impact on that behavior? And that was when I remember making this huge connection between the fact that I praised my students all the time with language like, I like the way you're all sitting so quietly. Mm -hmm. And I love how Mike is ready for morning meeting. And I love all the detail in your story. And thank you so much for the way you just pushed your chair in. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. Like every time I praised them, I was doing it in terms of what I liked and loved. So I was teaching them to be teacher pleasers, even as I wanted them to be independent and think for themselves. So yeah. those are a couple of really strong memories I have from early on in my career, where I realized that my language didn't always line up with what I was going for. That's so beautiful. I remember those stories from the book. And honestly, when you talked about that one um, girl giving you feedback that sometimes I hurt her feelings, I, I 
it put a lump in my throat. I taught seventh and ninth grade when I was in the classroom and mm. reading the section on sarcasm, you know, I would think like, oh, I'm, I'm relating to these kids. I, I treat them like I treat my brothers and sisters. And sometimes, <laughs> you know, like you had, I would tease someone in front of their peers and then have to apologize later. I'd love it if you could expand a little bit on like the damage that misplaced sarcasm can sometimes do to our relationships with students. And then like, how careful do we need to be with that kind of stuff? Yeah. Oh, it's so hard. I mean, I remember, so I grew up in the 70s and 80s and my favorite tv shows growing up were mash and cheers those all about shows it. from the great depression <laughs> oh nice There's misplaced sarcasm he's like two years younger yeah. i was gonna say it's, he it's... must be like 14 or something yeah, yeah, yeah. um yeah so the, those shows modeled such great sort of witty banter and biting sarcasm that uh, the characters seemed to be in this ongoing competition to see who could put each other down the best and that was kind of the way my language was with my friends growing up yep and so I think like you, I also thought of a way as of building camaraderie with my students. So this is a question I get a lot from teachers about sarcasm, because I think a lot of teachers say that they are sarcastic. And especially teachers of middle school and high school age students will say, oh, but my kids love sarcasm. They're sarcastic with each other all the time. And so one thing I do in the book is I highlight that I think we might be overgeneralizing that term a bit. So sometimes we say we're sarcastic when we're not being sarcastic. For example, if it is a cold, dreary day out and we look out the window and say, oh, what a beautiful day it is out there. <laughs> That's actually being ironic, not sarcastic. It's saying one thing and meaning another. It dips into sarcasm when the goal is to cut somebody down or to hurt somebody. So you might remember from the book, I looked up the, the origins of the word sarcasm. And the word comes from a Greek word, which means to tear flesh like a dog. Oof, which dang. I know. When I first saw that, it really uh, took me aback a little bit. But that's, that's what real sarcasm is about. It's about looking at a kid who just hasn't cleaned their stuff up and saying, what do I look like, your maid or something? It's intended to hurt their feelings or to cut them down to size. That kind of language has no place in our work with children. And then there are shades of gray in between all that. There are sometimes when we're a little snarky or when we snip at a kid when we shouldn't. So I think it's just really important for us to consider What's the goal of our language? And are we, and, and does our language match that goal? Mm -hmm. A good sniff test, and I use this with a bunch of different language, not just sarcasm, but a good sniff test is how would it feel if my administrator used that tone or used that phrase with me in a staff meeting? That's a really um, good way to think about it. Yeah, it just kind of helps you get on the other side of it a little bit and say, okay, yeah, how would it feel on the receiving end? And, and that, like, that, can, that can help. It reminds me of that, um, that quote I love in the book, it's, it goes, we must examine our habits with an eye towards students' sense of power. Why is that an important thing for us to consider and how our language might be undermining our students' sense of power? So I think this is one of the ways that teaching and learning and education in general has really shifted in the last 20 or 30 years. I think for a long time, the goal of education really was to have kids be rote little worker bees. Mm -hmm. And the power was with the adults most of the time. And it was the kid's job to do what the adults said. And when we were preparing kids for factory jobs in the industrial age, that might not have been the worst thing. I mean, it doesn't mean it was good teaching, but at least it matched where kids were going to be headed <laughs> for the most part. But man, learning has shifted so much. We're working at moving up Bloom's taxonomy. We want learning to be richer and deeper. It's more creative and more collaborative. And, and in order for kids to take on real learning that involves risk and involves all kinds of challenges, I think they need to have a sense of inner strength and power to be able to take on 
difficult tasks, to be able to set their own goals, to be able to make effective learning choices. So we need to make sure that our language is helping kids feel this sense of inner strength, you know, like they can do hard things, which means that we need to make the ownership rest with them and not us. And we want them to feel this you know, so inner resolve. I think it connects also a little bit with what Carol Dweck talks about with growth mindset, where we want kids to see themselves as growers and learners. Yeah, absolutely. So in your experience consulting, do teachers view this, their language as something that does impact student learning in the classroom? I'd assume that like if a teacher were to rank the 10 practices that they could change to impact student learning, that on the surface how they say things or what they say might not be in that 10. So how can you prove that language really does matter? <laughs> how can I prove it? Man, <laughs> prove it. Yeah, prove it. Yeah, it's, it's a great question because when you look at the research that's out there, if you look, for example, at the work of Bob Marzano, who's done a lot of great meta-analysis work, meta work in education, or John Hattie, Mm-hmm. who's looked at thousands of meta-analyses of research studies in education, you actually don't see teacher language or teacher talk at the tops of any of those lists. But what you do see when you look at those lists are all of these practices that rely on language. So you th- see things like teacher clarity. Yep, that's the one that just popped into my head. Yeah, like the ability to be really crisp and clean with directions and explain a point clearly. Like obviously, that's highly dependent on language. Um, mm-hmm. Relationship building is at the top of those lists. Classroom management is at the top of those lists. So there are all of these practices that have high impacts on achievement when you look at research that are really reliant on language practices, but you don't see language by itself at the tops of those lists, which I, which I don't know if that's because there's just not the research out there, it hasn't been mm-hmm. examined or what, but that, that's, my, that's my best answer at that. I'm curious about how, how you help either raise your own awareness about your speech patterns in class or how you help other people do it. Do you use like peer observations, video? You know, you mentioned that you asked your students before. What are good ways that we can self-reflect on these things? Having my students listen for my language, that I used that when I was trying to move away from using that I love the way you and I like the way you language have it. Yep. So at that point, I had already identified what I wanted to shift. But it's a great question is how do you even know what to identify? So when I'm working with teachers, a lot of what I'm doing is helping them explore a whole bunch of different language possibilities. That's really part of the part of the goal of the book that I wrote. And one of the reasons, by the way, that the chapters are so short, I don't know if you noticed that or not, but mm-hmm. you know, each of the chapters are seven or eight or 10 or 11 pages. Each one digs into this different possible topic that a teacher might explore. So I think that the book is a great resource for raising awareness. Another, another way to do it is to actually um, videotape yourself or even use your voice memo recorder on your phone and record yourself for 10 or 15 minutes as you're talking with students and listen back to it later. You often discover that you have these hidden ticks or you're saying a same phrase over and over again. Mm-hmm. And that's a good chance to say, huh, I didn't realize that I said that that way. Is that, is that what I'm trying to do? What is my goal there? And then another great way to do it is to have a colleague come in and listen to your language. And you might use this as a way to develop some initial awareness. Often when I'm going in and coaching teachers, they'll say, you know, just listen for anything that you might give me a push on with my language. Or if you already have a language goal, you might have a colleague come in and observe you teach for 10 or 15 or 20 minutes and then give you some feedback afterwards about how you're doing around a particular goal. So yeah, once we're, we've developed the awareness and we want to break that habit as you, as you talk about, what are some ways to do that? I, we're 50 episodes in, Becky and I have listened to ourselves talk and ask questions a lot and there are 
a thousand things I want to stop saying, like even a thousand, (laughs) I say a thousand too much. Uh, (laughs) How would you say like we should break those habits that we have once we've identified them? Nice. Yeah. So one suggestion I have is to only try and do one thing at a time. Mm. It can be really overwhelming when we, when we say, boy, there are a thousand things I want to fix. Even three things to fix is going to be a lot. So my recommendation is to pick one thing and to make sure it's manageable. So even when I was trying to work on that language habit of I love the way you, I like the way you, I wasn't trying to change all of the ways that I praised. I was focusing on that one little subset of praise. So to pick something that's manageable, and then also I encourage teachers to do this all the time, to also make sure you're picking something that's meaningful, that feels personally relevant, that you care about. I often say to teachers in workshops, for heaven's sake, don't change your language habit because I think it's a good idea. You know, some knucklehead in Durham, New Hampshire wrote a book about language. Doesn't mean you need to decide that you totally agree with everything I say. So I really encourage teachers to think what's a goal they might choose around language that that's manageable and really relevant. Because if it's not feeling important to you, you're just not going to have the motivation and energy needed to, to follow through. So I'll give you an example of a time that I really struggled with one. So when I was teaching in Portsmouth, my wife and I taught in the same school for a while. She was, she was a second grade teacher. And I remember on our car ride home from school one day, she said, hey, Mike, have you realized that you call both boys and girls guys? And I said, oh, yeah, I guess I, I, guess I do that. And she said, well, wouldn't it be weird if you went up to a group of boys and girls and called them all girls? I said, yeah, yeah, you're totally right. That's weird. All right, I'm going to stop doing that. And I sort of made this knee-jerk decision to just change my language without really internalizing it. And I failed miserably, in part because I had heard the girls in my class calling each other guys. Mm-hmm. I heard female teachers in the school calling girls and boys and girls together guys. So it, start, it felt like a gender-neutral term. But I think part of the reason that, that I didn't shift that back then was that I didn't take the time to develop a real reason for doing it. I sort of had this reaction, decided I was going to change it too quickly, and didn't think long and hard enough about it. So I have, I have mostly conquered that one. I do, I do still slip occasionally, but that is one that I eventually, eventually changed, and it was when I did some longer, deeper thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that it comes down to the fact that um, I've been reading a lot of James Clear recently, and he writes a lot about habits and how to break them, and he has a cool quote that, your habits are how you embody your identity. So in that case, you really had to change your thought process there. You couldn't just will your way out of saying guys a lot. So I think we see that there. Yeah, well, and that's a, that brings up another really important point, which is that once you've developed the commitment to it and it is manageable, then you need to have some strategies to try that will actually help you break the habit. Because having the commitment but no strategies probably isn't going to get you very far. As you say, it's hard to will yourself out of a habit. So that's a time to have a colleague come in and do some note-taking about your language or to tell your students, here's something I'm working at shifting. Listen Mm. for this. And if you hear me slip, give me a friendly reminder. Put some notes up around the walls of your classroom so that you have some replacement language so that in the moment when you hear it about to come out, you can quickly glance up and start off your sentence with something else. Those kinds of really practical, concrete strategies, and I give a bunch of those in the last chapter of the book, those, those are what you can use to help you practice to eventually develop the new habit. And, yeah, then, yeah. and that's the goal, is the new habit so that you no longer have to work so hard at it. 
because once it's the new habit, it's the new autopilot. I like that. I should have, I, the guys has always been a problem for me too. I'm from the suburbs of Chicago and that's just, you know, it's just common vernacular, but I mean, you can even hide tips to yourself, like in your own anchor charts in the back of the room, for example, like put, you know, fifth grade or everybody or something like that mm-hmm. um, so that you see it and it's, it's your go-to. I want to go back to praise a little bit too, because one of the things you talk about in the book is about uh, avoiding manipulative praise. And for that one specifically, I took a class, uh, a PD early on in my career, and it was full of what I think you call manipulative praise, like telling kids that they're doing something that you want others to mimic. Like, I love how Ben's picking up his workstation so that like, you know, little Kimmy next to him will start doing that too. What's the danger in manipulative praise? Can you talk about that a little? Yeah. And this is still a strategy that's used and taught in a lot of teacher prep programs. I'm, I mean, com- coming across a lot of young teachers who say, oh, I was just taught to do that in my program. So it's still a really common one. And I guess let's first come back to the positive intention behind it. I think that the reason that we're often encouraged to use that is because it feels kinder to praise the positive behavior of one than to criticize the negative behavior of a child. I, th- I think that's why teachers are encouraged to use that. It's about trying to use more positive than negative language, which I understand and applaud. But if we go back to our sniff test, how would it feel at a staff meeting if the principal got up and said, I love the way Ben is getting to bus duty on time (laughs) while looking directly at you, Becky, with sort of a knowing look. Um, That would be reversed. Yeah. I like the way Becky is showing up for, (laughs) yeah. So, I mean, not only would it be uncomfortable in the moment because you're being put in an awkward social spot, but it can create resentment between students. Mm. That's when you get kids calling each other the teacher's pet or kids feeling like the teacher has favorites in the room. And I think we all know which kids are typically going to be the the targets of this kind of language. Often the kids who are struggling with relationship and regulation are the ones who are often going to be compared to the kids who've already got regulation and are good at relationship. So it diminishes, I think, their sense of self a little. It's sending this little negative message. You're not as good as so-and-so. You can't quite do it as well as your classmate can. And for kids who are already on the edge of feeling disconnected from school, I worry about how that pushes them to the fringe just a little bit more. It's a little another piece of information they're getting that they don't quite fit here like some of the other kids. And I think that's potentially really damaging. Yeah. And it kind of, it, it strikes me too, that another part of the book you talk about being, and like we just talked about teacher clarity, being direct and saying, this is what I want. So instead of saying like, don't do this, don't do this, or praising the kid next to them, just being really direct with that student, that that can be more effective again with the goals that we have for our classroom. Yeah. So again, if you think about how would you want your principal to handle this, if Ben is having a hard time getting to bus duty on time, which is apparently the way I should have thrown that scenario out. <laughs> then probably you would want the principal to pull you aside and say, hey, Ben, it seems like you're having a hard time getting out to bus duty on time. What's going on? Is there anything I could do to help? Which would be much more direct and caring than sort of working around in this passive aggressive way, you know, by praising Becky to get Ben to do something. So I I think that's always something to consider is how would you, if you were struggling, how would you want somebody to help you out? Another thing you talk about in the book, um, what about the common language with what good readers do or what good writers do? How can something like that be detrimental to our classroom goals? Mm-hmm. This is another language habit that's being taught in a lot of programs. And you know, this is not the worst language sin that we've got in the world. 
you know, if Ooh, you had to choose. What's the worst one? <laughs> uh, sarcasm Swearing. might be up there. Uh, no. yeah. Tearing flesh off like yeah. a dog. <laughs> yeah, that, that might be at the top of the list. Yeah, I would put it yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I, it is, it's worth exploring. And this is a really popular language phrase in some literacy approaches and programs that I know of. And again, the intention is good, I think. I think the goal and attention behind it is to encourage kids to want to be good readers and writers and to frame what we're doing is trying to become good readers and writers. Now, one way that I'd push back on even that just initially is I think kids already want to be good readers and writers. I don't think they need encouragement. And we, I know we've got kids who say they don't care about reading and writing, but I think if we gave them a magic wand and they could just turn themselves into fantastic readers and writers, they would. Hmm. So even when they say that they don't want to read or write, I think deep down they'd love to be proficient and skilled. But then again, I think there's this, it's a little bit like the manipulative praise. We're setting up a little bit of a competitive atmosphere in the room when we say things like, one of the things that good writers do is they use lots of details to help their readers see the picture in their mind. Well, if you're a kid sitting in that class and the teacher starts the lesson off by saying, one of the things good writers do is, you're immediately trying to figure out, okay, so am I a good writer or not? How do I fit into those categories? Well, geez, I don't really put good detail in. The teacher just told me that yesterday. I guess I'm not a good writer. And then you might be thinking, well, I know Lisa who sits next to me. She's really good at writing lots of these. She must be the good writer. So I'm just not sure that we need to add that word, that judgmental word of, of good in there. Instead, we can say, Something that'll help strengthen your writing is to add in extra details to help your readers see, the pic see a picture in their mind. So instead of saying good readers and good writers, we can just say readers and writers or talk about why a particular strategy might be beneficial to reading and writing. You know, you'll enjoy, your, you'll enjoy reading more when you start to read between the lines and see nuances that the author is embedding in the text instead of saying something good readers do is. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Um, and I, it's it's so interesting how psychological and nuanced all of these things are. And that's why I really appreciate when you said, you know, like pick something that you know that you're doing that's contradictory to your goals and work on that thing. So like, I, I don't want people to listen and think that they have to change all these things at once. Like you said before, I think that's an important thing to come back to. Yeah, I still have plenty of language things that I could be working on. Yeah. You know, I think about my language that I use as I work with teachers now, facilitating workshops or coaching teachers or working with small groups of teachers. I think about my language as a dad all the time. So I've got oh. a couple of teenagers. So I've got all kinds of opportunities to practice language all and to hear time. myself saying things that maybe I wish I hadn't said. Yep. Um, I want to talk about tests and quizzes and independent practice. I think sometimes, you know, our kids are only going to take like the, the tests or the quizzes that we put in front of them as seriously as we do. And since we understand the importance of frequent testing, like the retrieval effect or the testing effect, how can we talk with our classes about independent work in a way that helps them want to do well on that work that we assign? And that it's like, not for us or, you know, not for, um, that it's, that it's about them. You know what I mean? How do we help them be more, uh, self-driven with that kind of a thing. So the question I have is why should the kid want to do the independent work? What's, what's in it for them? Is it that it's going to help them strengthen their skills? Is it part of a part of work that's moving towards something greater, like a class project, you know, is the class creating a movie or is the class doing research projects and this independent practice work is going to help move in that direction. What I find often in schools is that, Teachers have really good long-term, I call them teachery reasons for doing things. Mm -hmm. They often involve some variation of you're going to need this someday. You know, you'll need it in a few weeks when we take a test. 
or next year when you're in eighth grade, the teachers are going to expect you to. Right. Or when you get to college, you're going to have to, or out in the real world, a term I can't stand. <laughs> well, I, I just don't think any of these far away purposes are sufficiently motivational for kids. You're going to need it someday. It, it isn't very, it's not very motivating in the moment. Um, you think about adults and how much, how hard they have when it, you know, comes to exercising because it's going to be good for you someday yeah, or yeah. saving for retirement. I mean, Americans especially are notoriously bad at that kind of stuff. So I think one of the things that we've got to do as a teacher is to think in our heads. So what's a compelling reason from the kid's perspective that they should want to do this work? Does it tap into a sense of power and control? Does it tap into a sense of belonging and connection with other people? Is it something that's going to help them grow in their sense of competence and esteem? Is it fun or pleasurable in the moment? So for example, if we're going to have kids practice multiplying fractions, we could give them a set of problems and say, okay, practice this set of problems because these kinds of things are going to be on the test in two weeks. So the kids who care about tests and grades, you know, might find that sufficiently motivational and probably the kids who most need the practice on fractions won't. So instead, we might create games that would be fun to play that would help kids practice fractions or better yet, have them create games that would help them practice multiplying fractions. We could create a classroom display that is all about how to multiply fractions and part of the work of the class is to create this classroom bulletin board to show other people what we're learning about multiplying fractions. So that would give a sense of belonging and connection because we're doing a class project and there's a sense of purpose there. We're not just learning this to practice it and to know it for a test, but we're actually teaching other people about it. So I think that's the kind of the broad general answer to your question. Mm -hmm is how do we seek out a kid meaningful purpose behind the work? Yeah, and staying away from, well, I don't know. I Sometimes um, I'll hear people talk about like standardized exams, you know, which I know aren't teachers' favorites. Um, but the way we message those is really, uh, I, I think we need to be really careful about it. With, I, I mean, I've heard people say like, this is going to be tough. Just, you know, try your best, put your head down, get through it. It's not, you know what yeah. I mean? Um, and I, I don't know. I just think if we wanted to, make the best use of the tests that we are required to give, that that is pretty contradictory to how we should be doing it. You know what I mean? Totally. So instead we might think, okay, so why should, what's a, what's a relevant kid reason for doing well and putting an effort on a test, on a standardized test even? Yeah. We, we might say something like, this is one of the ways that as a school, we figure out what we're doing well and what we're not doing well. And when you really work hard and put in a hard effort, it gives us a better picture and more accurate picture of how we can improve teaching and learning here at the school. We might say something like, oh, boy, that's a hard one because often those tests don't come back for six months. I know. And so often teachers are having a hard time with seeing purpose in them. That's right. Um, but we could, I mean, I don't know if we like brainstorm together or something, you know what I mean? And talk as a staff. I don't know. I don't know. There's just got to, I don't know. There's got to be a better way than that. We're cutting this part out because I'm talking over myself a lot. Sorry. Well, yeah, but they, I don't know. There's something interesting here. You know, brainstorming as a staff, why should kids care about a standardized test? That would be a really interesting staff activity to try. And you might do the same thing with students to see what they come up with. And then, so here's, I think this is really important. And I'm thinking a lot about this for the next book too. It's not enough to just have motivation. This kind of goes back to what Ben and I were talking about a second ago, but you have to have strategies. So I don't know if motivation does you much good without management skills. Mm -hmm. So what are strategies for pushing through when you're frustrated? What are effective test-taking techniques that will help you 
show what you know and not get overwhelmed by what you don't. And to have kids explore some of those strategies and even practice some of those strategies might be another way that we can help those tests not feel quite so devoid of purpose. Well, you are like a master of making sure a language matches that intent. I, I mean, I, I am so guilty of saying that about the test. Like, hey, this is hard. Just, you know, power through. You can do it. I would love if we could take some time and we'll give you some phrases and you just fix them for us. Um, <laughs> and actually, you'll just, I'll send all my tweets to you first. Yeah. You can, uh, but your book does an awesome job of, of doing that, of reframing some of our language to match um, our true intent. So we'll you. give you a couple and you can help us um, figure out what's the better way of saying that to match our positive intent. How's that sound? Since we're going to be so careful of language, I'd like to offer a tweak. Please do. That I might offer some suggestions about alternative ways of saying something. But even in the book, I try, I think I make the point in there somewhere that those charts that I offer are suggestions and starting points. But I don't think there's often one best way to say anything because so much of it depends on teacher personality and teacher voice and the the situation you're in and the relationship you have with the kids. So I'd be happy to offer some alternatives, but I shy away from saying you say something and I'll fix it and make it the best. See, that actually was the first thing and you just did it. So that was perfect. perfect. Um, okay. Uh, next thing. All right. So I just got back. I was super sick. Last time I had a sub, I got an awful report. I do not want to hear these same things again. No bis- misbehaving when I'm gone, kids. No misbehaving. If I get another sub report, I'm going to freak out. <laughs> <laughs> so first, let's explore why that might not be the best. Um, first of all, it makes it sound like being good for the sub is all about you. Mm. And it's about your hopes and wishes and what you care about. Um, so we might start by turning that around and say, hey, it sounds like you had a really hard day when I was out last time when I was sick. And, you know, I read the letter from the guest teacher. I think guest teacher is a nice substitute, by the way, for the word sub. Huh. Um, I read the letter from the guest teacher and he said that huh. people were pretty out of control and not a lot of learning happened. So let's think about some strategies that could help you have a better time when I'm out next time. And let's think about some things you can do and let's think about some things I, t- I can do and we'll come up with a plan as a, a class together. I like it. Why guest teacher instead of sub? I mean, I have an idea, but. So I wish I could claim credit for this. And I don't know who exactly to give credit to, except that I remember hearing this long ago when I was a responsive classroom presenter. I think there's something more powerful about the term guest teacher. Yeah. That this isn't the person who's coming in and subbing or being a sub. It's just a warm body that we got to be in this room with you today. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah. Instead, it's a teacher who's coming in, who's a guest in our classroom. And I think there's a warmer quality to that. Oof, I dig it. I like yeah, it. That's, that's really good. Uh, kid asks me if he can use his cell phone to listen to music during an activity. And I say to him, I don't think you'll be able to focus with your music on. All right. So the reason we might shift that one is because it's, it's a little wishy-washy. Mm. It sounds like we're saying no without really saying no. I'm a and master of that. <laughs> <laughs> and especially for kids who are used to really directive language. And of course, you have to be careful not to overgeneralize. But, but when you do look at general trends, kids who live in poverty tend to get much more directive language than kids in suburban cultures. And so when you get suburban teachers using wishy-washy suburban language with kids who are used to more directive language, you get miscommunication. So if what we want to say is no, then we should say, nope, now's not a good time to listen to music. You can put, that, put the earbuds in another time. Or if it is a good time, then we can say, 
as long as you can get your work done, it's okay to listen to some music. So I think we should be a little more clear and answer it either yes or no. Love that. How about, uh, all right, this essay, I'm going to be looking for three big things in this essay. So make sure you have these three things in your essay. So if we want to boost student ownership, my suggestion would be to rethink that I'm going to give you three things. I think that's how you said it. Mm-hmm. I have three things. How'd you yeah, say it? I'm, I'm looking for three things. I'm look- yeah, yeah. So right now it sounds like my goal as the student is to give you what you're looking for, which means that I probably am not feeling a lot of intrinsic motivation or ownership of this. It's about pleasing the teacher. Hmm. So instead you might say, here are three things that you could do in this essay that'll help make your writing really strong. So then the reason for doing these three things is because it's about making the writing strong, not pleasing the teacher, which is probably what we want kids caring more about. You know, what strikes me about it too, is just that it's not just that one time that Ben says, you know, I'm looking for these three three things in an essay. It's language that we normalize and use over and over and over for like 15 years of a kid's life and Mm -hmm. then expect them to internally, you know, go to the gig economy and be fine. Right. right. Well, the boss telling them. Yeah. So, you know, what's really interesting is now as a consultant, I'm working in many districts K to 12, and it is not uncommon for me to be in elementary schools where kids are being, um, they're hearing a lot of language that has to do with compliance. I'm looking for children to line up quietly. I love it when you do such and such. Here are three things that I want you to do for me. They're often used, they're being subjected to carrot and stick approaches to discipline. You know, kids are getting cougar bucks for walking quietly in the hall and they're getting stickers and a chart that are leading up to a pizza party, which gets them caring about pizza, not learning. So this happens to them all through elementary school. And as they get into upper elementary school, we start shifting the motivation to being about grades. The reason you should do stuff is to get grades. And that continues through middle school. And by the time you get to late middle school and early high school, what I hear a lot of teachers saying is, my kids just don't seem to care. My kids aren't motivated at all. They either don't wanna do anything or they're just trying to do whatever I tell them to and they want a rubric for everything so they know how to get their grade. And I'm not saying that that's the only thing going on is the way we talk to kids and the you know, carrot and stick approach to discipline. But, but if those strategies did yield deep intrinsic long-term motivation, I think we would see a different story at the middle and high school level than we're currently seeing, which mm. is a lot of kids who seem disconnected. Yeah, that's that's for sure. And you see the engagement in school is a sharp decline every year from kindergarten all the way till they get to high school. And, uh, and the research behind this stuff is is rock solid, by the way. So when we use extrinsic motivators, when we use sticker charts, when we use candy or money or marbles in a jar, what that does is it replaces intrinsic motivation. So Study after study after study bears this out. It's so fascinating and so kind of sad and disheartening (sighs) that the more we use these extrinsic motivators, the more we diminish kids' love of learning or interest in doing the right things for the right reasons. And And it's terrifying to me because it's a predominant paradigm in schools. I see it in schools all over where I've worked. I see it with my own kids' experience through schools. And oftentimes, the people who are using those systems don't see the long-term effect. They sometimes see what looks like a short-term positive effect as the kids get excited about a pizza party, but they're not seeing the, the lack of motivation that happens later on or, or those aren't being connected. Uh, so this is not a question we had written down. So I'm just 
totally spitballing it. So thinking about what you'd mentioned earlier about the danger of manipulative praise, and I'm thinking you had just mentioned that you work K-12, and being in some of those kindergarten and first grade classrooms and thinking about that carpet time when you have, you know, 34 and five and six year olds, um, I just don't know if I've seen another way of, you know, getting con- not control, but like compliance like and yeah. How do you manage a class of 30 people? Yeah, I guess, can we have, is it okay to have different language in kindergarten from 12th grade, I guess? Well, we should have some of the best kindergarten teachers I know saying stuff like, oh, I like how Johnny is sitting here. Whereas Mm. when I get up and I'm trying to do a whole group read aloud to 30 kindergartners, they just don't even listen. It's like (laughs) chaos, you know? So I think first we should acknowledge that we should talk to five-year-olds differently than we talk to Mm. 18-year-olds, but only kind of. We should use different language structure and different vocabulary, but the overall principles of language, I think, don't change. So instead of using manipulative praise when we're with kindergarten, we can say, hey, everybody, it's time for us to sit quiet and look forward so you can listen to the story. Look at where your hands are, look at where your bodies are, make sure you're ready to listen. Mm. And then as kids are sort of settling in, we can say, oh, it looks like about 10 people are ready, looks like about Mm. 20 people are ready. Mm. So we can still use that same kind of pattern of, you know, some of you are ready and some of you aren't quite yet without naming names. And then when a kid is struggling, instead of using the manipulative praise of, Becky, thank you so much for sitting quietly while we're giving Ben the hairy eyeball, we can just tap Ben on the knee and say, Ben, time to straighten your body and look forward. So nice, quick little reminders and redirections that are um, direct and clear. And then a warm, positive tone. You know, I talk in the book about channeling our inner Mary Poppins. (laughs) That's sort of the, I don't want to say magic sauce because there's nothing magic about it. But the goal is to be both firm and crisp and clear and warm and kind at the same time. Warm and demanders, so when I, totally. Yeah. What was that? Warm demanders. I've heard you know that phrase before for it. Sure. I really like that. Yeah. So when I work with kindergarten, when I go in and do demo lessons in kindergarten, I'm able to, to manage the group just fine without using that manipulative praise. I like it. Yeah. So it's the same strategy just without calling. I, I get what you're saying for sure. I was... I guess when I first heard it, I thought you were like throwing out that entire structure, but yeah, you're, you're totally right. Don't call out like, Hey, just Becky's doing great. Mm -hmm. And I like what you're saying there. Yeah. I used to do that all the time with my third, fourth and fifth graders where I would say, Oh, looks like about a third of us are ready. Looks like about two thirds of us have remembered to bring our writer's notebook up to the circle. And then you Mm. immediately see some kids go, Oh shoot. And they'd run back to their cubbies. Yeah. Cause Um, they know. Yeah. 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 And And they want to do well. Positive. Of course they I think that's do. like that's that underlines all underlies all of this sometimes, and even our own reservations about how to you know get classroom management or make sure that they have intrinsic motivation is just that sometimes we forget that kids want to do well, kids want to be smart, kids want to look good and and feel good about their learning um and learning can be the fun part. It doesn't always have to be like, you know, games and stuff. I'm going to be vulnerable. Um, and I've had this conversation with a couple of people and it's kind of like we said before, you know, it's about nuance. It's about what you are comfortable with and not comfortable with. Um, what are the words that it's my, I think my biggest pet peeve in education and listeners, please don't stop listening because I say this, but I, I really, the word kiddos just is like nails on a chalkboard to me. I just, mm-hmm. I don't, sometimes I think how can we see them as people, it just feels really condescending to me, um, especially, like, especially as kids get older and older, like there's no reason we should be call it referring to high school students as kiddos. But other people, you know, 
they'll they'll talk like that about their kindergartners and say, no, 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 it's like a term of endearment. So I mean, I, I get that part of it's subjective, um, but I'm curious about first what you think about that. Like, how do we talk to and about what kind of words do we use for our students? I've heard people say scholars, things like this. Um, does that make a difference? And then also, I want to know what your biggest pet peeve is. Hmm. So I'm right with you on kiddo, and this is one that I've heard sort of coming into vogue in the last few years. I don't remember hearing this one eight or 10 years ago, but in the last five or six years, it seems like it's really hit the scene. So I think I agree with you that there's something about kiddo that makes children feel or appear small or sort of lesser than. I've also noticed that it's something that teachers seem to use when they're feeling sorry for children. Yes. So they'll say things like, oh, you know, I've got this one kiddo in my class who it's really true. has a hard time with behavior. And I think it's their way of softening things and showing affection and love for kids who are struggling. So I think the intent behind it is a good one. And I, and I agree that I know teachers use it as a term of endearment, just like honey and sweetie. And I encourage people to rethink those terms also. Um, and instead to use terms that feel a little more empowering, such as student or fourth grader, mm -hmm. or use their name instead of using kiddo. Yeah, again, this would be, so imagine how it would feel if the, an administrator were using these terms for teachers in a school. Um, or would you allow your students to call you sweetie or honey mm -hmm. or something like that? I think it's something that people in power do to people who are below them in the power chain, which is part of what I struggle about with that. Um, That's huge. Does that make sense? Yeah. So what's your biggest pet peeve? Great job. Ooh. I was just going to say that to you. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> but you have to, I know. <laughs> Tell and, us and more, maybe, And maybe just because it's so overused. Mm. You know, if we say every now and then, great job or good job, I, there's nothing, you know, the thunderbolts shouldn't strike us dead from the language gods <laughs> above. But, um, but there's something about how people use it so often in so many different settings. And I often see teachers or adults walking around and saying to kids, good job, good job, great job, awesome job. Yeah, great, awesome, great, great. It's like we always have to be walking around and again, inserting ourselves into what they're doing hmm. and judging them, hmm. which again is this form of having power over them, which means it takes a little bit of their power away. Um, and I think kids very quickly realize that it, that it doesn't really mean anything. I think about those lines of Little League kids who, who pass by each other, mm -hmm. high-fiving each other wow. at the end of a yeah, game. Yeah. Yep. Good job, great job, good job, good job, good job. And they're not even saying, they're just, yeah. it doesn't mean anything. Huh. Um, but I think that the real reason that I, that I struggle with it is because it's this way that, it's this very small, subtle way that somebody has of taking away a little bit of somebody else's power. Mm. Um, and of course we don't mean to do it that way, but, um, so here's an example of what we could do instead. I was, I was working with a group of teachers in Alabama and they were working on choice and differentiation and this topic of language had come up and they were kindergarten and first grade teachers and they, their palms were sweaty as they were thinking about reworking the way they talked with their children, especially with the way they praised. And they were saying things like, is this a Southern thing? Is this people in the South do this? And I said, no, 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 everybody does this. I, I live in the Northeast. It's all over the place. <laughs> so I did a demo lesson in a kindergarten classroom so that I could both demonstrate choice and so that teachers could listen to my language. So the choice in that class was students were all practicing counting. And the teacher had 45 or 50 different collections, she called them, 
So little Tupperware containers, one had pennies, one had beads, one had marbles, one had keys, one had little plastic spiders. So one choice was kids got to decide what they wanted to practice counting. And then the other choice was they get to decide whether they practiced writing the number that they counted on a piece of paper with a pencil or on a dry erase board with a marker. So we had this set up, kids are working throughout the room and there's one boy who's counting pennies and he's struggling a bit. And he had, there were a lot of pennies. So he was getting up into the mid twenties and then he was getting lost, you know, 23, 24, 27, he was getting frustrated. And so I came over and lay down next to him cause he was on the floor. And I said, hey, it looks like you're having a hard time. Can I give you a hand? He said, yeah. And I said, well, I have a question. Do you know how to count by tens? He said, yeah, 10, 20, 30, 40. I said, all right, so how about you put the pennies in piles of 10 and then you'll be able to count the piles and you won't get lost. He said, okay. So he was able to do that pretty independently. I think I had to help him with one pile, like sneak a penny in there because he only had nine, but he really did that pretty much by himself. So he had five piles of 10 and there's one penny left over. So I said, all right, let's count them. And I helped him start 10, 20, and then he took over 30, 40, 50. And then there's a long pause as he's looking at the one penny left. Cool. And I pointed to it and I said, and there's one more. He said, 51. Okay, so at this point, what is the classic teacher praise that we would give this kid? Good job, Good job. kiddo. Good job. Awesome job. You're so smart. Great job. Good counting. Right. Yes. Instead, I said, yeah, you got it. It's 51. Okay, now see if you can write the number 51. Mm -hmm. And so he wrote a one and then a five. I said, those are the numbers in 51, but that says 15. Do you know how to make it a 51? And he crossed out the one and put it on the other side of the five. I said, that says 51. You did it. All right, what are you going to do? You're going to count something else or are you going to count the pennies again? He said, I'm going to count the pennies again. Oh. I said, all right, have fun. And I got up and walked off to somebody else. Yeah. So what, we, what I was doing was instead of talking about how he was doing, instead of praising him and judging him, we were talking about what he was doing. Mm. And that's a shift I encourage teachers to think about is instead of talk about how we feel about stuff, talk with kids about what they're doing. I think it's very empowering. So I was talking with the teachers. There had been eight or 10 teachers observing this demo lesson. And we're all in this conference room afterwards talking about this. And I was asking them, so what did you think about that language? How did it sound to you? And teachers were kind of going around and around and they liked it, but you could see there was still some angst. And finally somebody said, but did he know that you liked him? Huh. And just as she said this, that group of kindergartners walked by and we were in this glassed in conference room where you could see in and the kindergartners saw me in there Aww. and they started grabbing each other and jumping up and down and pointing. It's Mr. Anderson. Look, it's Mr. Anderson and waving. Hi, Mr. Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> and so I said to the teachers, uh, exhibit A. Yeah. And huh. I think, I think that's, I think teachers often say we praise a lot. We say, great job. Good job. Both because we're trying to, let kids know they're on the right track and because we're trying to build relationship and let kids know that we love them. But here's a problem with that. If we let them know that we love them, if we're giving them more approval when they're doing well, that means that our love is conditional. It's conditional on their work or on their behavior, Oof. which means they could lose it. So it can also create this sense of anxiety because if the teacher likes me when I'm counting well, what happens when I make a mistake? And if we want to create classrooms where kids feel safe enough to take risks, I think we really need to be cautious about making sure our language, our praise is not, is not seeming conditional on kids' behavior or work. Wow. 
Whoa. I know. <laughs> yeah, I, like I don't. Uh, it's so good. This is like mind blowing stuff for yeah. sure, and makes me second guess everything about being a parent. Like, because that was the That's first thing coming to my mind. My having kids. a kindergartner. Yeah. And it's and it's so much harder as a parent. Yeah. <laughs> it's so much harder. I Heather and I always figured we were sort of ready to be parents because we'd practiced on other people's children for so long. Um, yeah, parenting is super hard. It's super hard. <laughs> that should be your next book. Yeah. Because there's so much more emotion. You know, yeah. there's a different kind of relationship all tangled up in it. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's super hard. Oof. Man, thank you so, yes, thank you so, so much, much for, for the sure. time and for sharing these stories with us. I Huge, huge encouragement to all of our listeners to pick up your book. I found it so enlightening. Um, oh, but we'll you. let you run on this. Uh, where can our listeners go to learn from and with you? My website would be a good place to start. That connects to all kinds of places. And my website is leadinggreatlearning.com. Cool. We'll link it in show notes. Yeah. And they can also connect with me on Twitter. I'm at Balanced Teacher. And I also have a Facebook page that I maintain for teachers called The Well-Balanced Teacher. So those are all places people could go to uh, connect with me. Okay, Ben, let's close up shop. What did you learn? Radical candor, Becky. I'm so happy now in hindsight that we interviewed. I loved this episode with Mike, but when you originally booked him and I saw the calendar invite before I'd read his book or watched his webinar, I kind of had like a slight eye roll. Uh -uh. Uh, Just because I was like, as teachers, we have so many things to focus on to move student achievement and growth and is really calling out the language police because we use the word kiddos or something really impacting student achievement and growth. And I'm kind of bought in. Like, I'm not saying that's the only thing, but I'm 100% saying it is a real thing um, that, you know, it is so important that how we talk to kids frames what they think about learning and what they think about education. And, uh, you know, students lose interest in school every single year of school from kindergarten on. And is part of that because of how we talk to kids and how they Mm. feel about school. So super excited about that. And Mm. if, if I was in the classroom right now, I would, you know, after you've been teaching for a long time and your evaluator comes in for the 10th year in a row, they're like, what new stuff are they looking for? And so I think if I was in the classroom now, I would tell my evaluator, hey, will you just listen to what I say and tell me times that my word choice isn't aligning up with what you know about me and about my values. So I think there's definitely something to this. I loved the book and I loved our conversation. How about you, Becky? Oh, that's cool. Um, I think it's a good idea to ask evaluators for it. And it kind of reminds me like, I think one thing that really stuck out to me was how important habits are that we can't will yep. our way out of bad. I've been trying to stop saying guys for like five years, yeah. but unless I replace and the swears, it, you always say, yeah. Becky. <laughs> well, don't even get me started. Yeah. I, it's a good thing we have a script for this sometimes. Cause yeah. I'd be swearing like a trucker. Yeah, yeah. Um, but like how important it is that we need habits and phrases and mantras to replace our current habits. Um, in the intro to the book, I, I know I always quote, but I'm going to do it again. He says that the book is about the intersection of our language patterns and our best intentions. Where do those things intersect or not? Um, And I think it's important that we think about our intentions and our outcomes because they're not always and not even often exactly the same. Um, I really made a connection when he was talking about how we want our students to be passionate about learning. We want them to engage in pro-social interactions. And then there's another educator I follow named Dave Stewart Jr. who has some really great blogs and resources on student motivation. He says he wants his students to do work work with care. And all of those things sound great and I think might echo what you want from your students too. But 
what could be really powerful about this is identifying what do you want to see in your students and then how are you conveying that to them through language over their 13 or 14 year journey through public ed? Because like you said, it's it's not just about what we say to them that day. It's how do we talk to them throughout their whole educational career? Mm-hmm. Are we empowering or are we building complicit learners? Um, so I just, I don't know. I want somebody to follow me around and tell me where my own language is undermining my intent. You want to do that for me? Done. Okay, sweet. Yeah. Uh, and we could actually enlist the help from our listeners for this too. I really like, but like you said, tell an evaluator, tell a coach. I would tell my students, I taught ninth graders. Um, and I, I think I'd just be a parent with them, like, or obvious with them. I want you to do this work for you. So anytime I say for me, or I like that, you guys have to help me yeah. stop saying that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And the book can be a huge help. So definitely we recommend picking that up too. Absolutely. Well, listeners, thank you so much for listening. And we are very curious, what are some language habits you are going to work on? Share them with us. Uh, We know that anytime you make your goal visible, you're way more likely to keep it. So that might be a way we can all keep each other in check. Uh, Share that with us at Rainwaves on Twitter or leave a comment on the blog at brainwaves.com. As always, if you like this episode, we share it with a friend and have a great... I was waiting for you. Oh. (laughs) Generic time. Generic time of day. (laughs) 